Hello and welcome to Ashurst Legal Outlook. This is a podcast for the Corporate Crime and Investigations mini-series, a series in which we explore a range of topics related to investigations and bring you some of the insights we gain from carrying out investigations with our clients across a range of sectors. My name is Ruby Hamid. I co-lead Ashurst Global Corporate Crime Team from our offices in London. And today I am delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel of my Ashurst colleagues in this content about fraud. Tom Mercer, Matt Russell, Nisha Sangani and Neil Donovan, who will be focusing with me today on the new legislation in the UK, failing to prevent fraud and also what our clients should be doing to get ready for it. I'm going to start, Tom, with you, if I may. In the time that you spend with boards and senior management, what sort of shift are you seeing in their view of fraud and the management of the risk of fraud? It's it's interesting how fraud um, has, has moved on. And I think this new legislation is going to result in, in, in a step change in the way in which boards have, have to deal with fraud. It, it used to be said, probably by lawyers, on the basis that you couldn't exclude liability for fraud, that it wasn't something you could legislate for. And ironically, now it has been legislated for, and boards need to be very careful um, in relation to, to how they're how they're monitoring potential fraud in businesses. And and without stealing Neil's thunder, because I know he's going to talk about it in a minute, one of the particular features of the new legislation is we're not talking about fraud on the company. Uh, we're talking about effectively vicarious fraud by the company and a failure of board and senior management to prevent that fraud. Um, and I, does, I do think that requires boards to think very carefully about a company's purpose and its culture, um, and in particular focus on whether there are actually any potentially perverse incentivizations or pressures on people within a business, which can uh, incentivize people effectively to cheat, uh, to game the system in a way which could amount to fraud. And that does involve um, slightly more um, focused thinking around a company's values and its culture. And also the outward representation of the company um, to, to consumers and people who could be affected by any fraud by the company, um, which touches on some other hot topics, like, for example, greenwashing. Um, so this is something which is fairly all-encompassing for boards to think about. The good news, I think, particularly for large organizations and public companies, is that this ought to be a build on their existing systems and controls. Um, but but nonetheless, it will, it will test them, and it will sometimes require boards to think um, and, and to look at things reading between the lines as well as the more traditional financial reporting lines and audit controls they have in place. Tom, thank you. That's a that's a really great way to set the scene. Neil, do you mind just giving us a little bit of an introduction on what this new legislation is? Yes, of course. Thanks, Ruby. So the new failure to prevent fraud offence creates a standalone criminal offence uh, by which an organisation can be liable for failing to prevent fraud committed for its benefit uh, by an associated person. So if we just unpack some of those key elements, um, firstly, the offence only applies to large organisations. Those are organisations which satisfy two of of the following criteria, more than 250 employees, um, more than £36 million in turnover or managing over £18 million in assets. And, And that's a um, difference to the failure to prevent offences we've seen under the Bribery Act and the Criminal Finances Act, where there is no carve out for small and medium sized companies. The predicate conduct for the offence, so the underlying fraud, 
um, captures a, a very broad range of fraud offences. It covers the principal offences under the Fraud Act. So that's your fraud by false representation, failure to disclose, abuse of position. But it also covers um, offences like false accounting, fraudulent trading, and um, significantly cheating the public revenue. So you're seeing statements to HMRC or tax evasion could potentially, that's for the benefit of the company, could potentially lead to, to liability under this new offence. The, the associated person test is the same um, as that for previous failure to prevent offences. There's persons who perform services on behalf of the company. And the jurisdictional scope is, is quite interesting under the new offence because whilst the Act is silent on extraterritoriality, um, in contrast to the Bribery Act, for example, which, which applies to overseas conduct, um, for the new offence, jurisdiction will be determined by the underlying fraud offence. And what that means in broad terms is that an element of the offence of the fraud must have occurred in the UK. Um, so that might be that, that the associated person commits a part of the fraud in the UK or that the intended gain or loss occurs in the UK. It's strict liability. So like previously, it, it, the company doesn't have knowledge of the conduct, that that's not a defence, it's a strict liability offence. And there is a defence that we've seen previously that Tom mentioned that if the company can prove it had reasonable prevention procedures in place at the relevant time, so that can continued focus on on compliance controls. Um, the penalty is a fine, unlimited fine. We've obviously seen some very significant fines imposed for failure to prevent conduct in recent years. Um, and then in terms of next steps, the offence, we're expecting it to come into force over the next six to 12 months. Um, the government will first need to issue some guidance on reasonable procedures uh, and the offence should come into force shortly thereafter. Thanks, Neil. M Matt, this sounds like a big change. Um, can you give our clients some reassurance that the systems and structures and controls they already have in place are going to get them some way towards where they need to be? Yes, the first point is that those reasonable procedures um, that, that Neil described, which obviously in, inform the controls, we, we're anticipating are going to be consistent with what we've got in place, what organisations sh should have in place in terms of either the Bribery Act or the um, the Criminal Finances Act as it relates to the facilitation um, of tax evasion. So you, we're anticipating those sort of six pillars of risk assessment, risk-sensitive or, or, or risk-based um policies and procedures, the sort of senior management commitment, uh, due diligence, sort of communications and training, and then finally, uh, monitoring and, uh, and testing. So on, on one level, we would hope that organizations have already got that sort of framework and are, have, are able to think about their controls sort of through that, uh, through that lens. And, and similarly to, to Tom's point, from a fraud perspective, you'd expect particularly those large organizations to already have um, controls in place, particularly around um, financial um, misstatements. So in part, we would hope this is an element of calibration of what they've they've got in place and, and maybe identifying where some of the the, the, the gaps are that, that they need uh, need addressing. It's probably worth sort of just sort of reinforcing though that we are talking about fraud controls, which means we are focused perhaps more on some of those softer controls around things like conduct, which may be, which may not have been such a area of focus in relation to those other two offences that, that, that I've just described. And also some of the specific controls may warrant a bit more attention. So particularly things like whistleblowing or, or speak up. So again, how does the organisation 
get comfortable that perhaps the controls that they do have in place are perhaps now still fit for purpose in the context of um, the, the greater emphasis that this defence is, is, is wanting to to get all the organisations to focus on. Matt, thank you. That That's a, a great point you make about focus on conduct rather than focus on financial management. Um, Nisha, I know that's one of the challenges that you see with the offence from a governance perspective, but there are others, aren't there? What what would you see as the challenges companies need to tackle as they get ready for the new offence? Thank you, Ruby. I, look, I think Tom and, and Matt have just articulated really well that actually organisations generally will have controls in place um, at a ground level in terms of fraud and, and, and they'll have an idea of of exactly how they manage this risk um, from a day-to-day business perspective. I think one of the biggest challenges I see comes back to if you think about what the objective of the act is. And the objective of the act is really for organisations to think about the fact that actually it's not a defence to say that you didn't know. Um, and, and that approach and that attitude really has to be driven from the boardroom and kind of in light of what Tom was talking about earlier, that really the act is all about thinking about culture and conduct and around how the values of an organization stem through to all the processes and controls on the ground. And I think one of the biggest challenges I can see from a governance perspective is if you think about some of the principles behind the act, they talk about this concept of senior managers and decision making. And what that is really trying to get to is really two things. One, accountability starts at the boardroom. And number two, how do you build that connection between sort of enterprise risk management when it comes to fraud control from a boardroom perspective versus all of those process and controls are running on the ground? What's the framework that brings all of that together to make sure that A, the board is ensuring that its values and the, the, the culture that it sets from the top permeates through the organization, but it's more than that. How does the board then oversee that all the processes and controls are working accurately? Coming back to what I said at the beginning, it's not a defense to say that you didn't know. You've got to have reasonable steps in place. You've got to build a framework to make sure that actually your oversight mechanisms are working. Um, And for me, I think that's probably the single biggest challenge in all of this. Can I ask you, Nisha, about the the challenge around senior managers? What we know from uh, the new Act is that there is a, a an additional change as well as the failure to prevent fraud offence, in that the way that corporates become criminally liable is being expanded beyond the very senior directing mind and will test we've been used to, to the actions of a much larger group of people who are described as senior managers. How is a company going to understand what that population is and how they manage the risk within it? It's a really good question, Ruby. Broadly, if you think about the concept that accountability starts at the boardroom, in order to define your list of senior managers, you almost need to look at how that delegation of authority and that chain of command works in the boardroom down to the ground floor. Um, and that's really important when it comes to something like fraud control, because actually, if I'm sitting on the board of a large organization and I'm responsible, I'm obviously, I've got accountability for making sure that my organization has the right controls um, and framework in place for managing these risks. I don't do all of that work myself. I'm reliant on my peers, my the functional heads that work with me. They also have people working for them. I have people working for me. And each of those will own various elements of, of the risk profile, if you like. They'll be running controls to help me manage that risk. And so this is about building a real understanding of those delegation chains 
Um, and, and, and from that is really how you get your population of senior managers because there'll be different levels of accountability depending on their day-to-day roles and responsibilities. But you really need to map out and look at it from this lens. Neil, can I move back to talking about investigations, which is the focus of our series? Do we think there's going to be an increase in investigations now we have these two new routes to liability for fraud? Um, yes, is the short answer. I think we're expecting um, quite a significant uptick in investigations. Obviously, um, o- over the course of the past 13 years since the Bribery Act was introduced and um, then the subsequent offences under the Criminal Finance Act, we have seen um, corporates become increasingly sophisticated at, at conducting investigations into um, economic crimes. And we, we do expect an uptick um, on the back of the new offence coming into force. I think in many ways, um, investigations are going to be, um, whether internal or externally led, are going to be very much the starting point for boards um, and very instructive to them in terms of understanding what their level of exposure might be um, and and whether a failure to prevent offence may have occurred here. Um, And so a kind of robust, tightly scoped, timely investigation is going to be um, a very important step to take where potential issues have been identified. There is a broader point as well, um, which is that boards may have to grapple more regularly with self-reporting considerations. And so understanding the nature of the conduct and whether there is an exposure at corporate level such that a self-report may be, um, may be required to the authorities, um, that they're very important strategic considerations and boards will only be in a position to take those decisions if they um, are informed as to the full set of facts. So conducting that proportionate fact-finding exercise, understanding what's happened um, and doing that as efficiently as, per, as, as, as possible is going to be a very important step. And Matt, if those investigations are going to increase, are they themselves part of the reasonable procedures that a company has in place? Is it, I suppose, reasonable to it to investigate a fraud i think yes but probably yes on a on a couple of levels ruby so i suppose the first one is and this comes back to the point that nisha was making around senior management being able to demonstrate that they are on top of these issues and and, and responding to the information and the insights that they're they're receiving the investigation or investigations i think become an important tool in that context so i think we would you'd expect to see um, senior management being able to have visibility over not just the outcome of the investigation as it relates to the facts of the case, but also the extent to which the investigation is able to conclude on the effectiveness of the controls that are in place and the extent to which those reasonable procedures are working. And also thinking about the evidence that the organisation is responding to some of those weaknesses um, and also asking the question of to what extent are some of those weaknesses uh, systemic and I think reassuringly that's part of the journey that investigations functions have already been on over the 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 last sort of five to ten years sort of moving away just from determining facts to being able to start to assess that that control environment I think probably the this further step is thinking about what it means in the context of a potential failure in the context of those overarching uh, reasonable procedures. I think the other point I would make, though, is that there is, I think those investigations functions probably need to be upskilled in relation to how they navigate and understand 
how those reasonable procedures are framed in the context of the particular activity or the particular allegations that they're investigating. Because again, we come back to this idea that it's a risk-based approach in the context of what we anticipate the reasonable procedures to be or the principles to be framed. So how does the investigator get comfortable or does it ask the right questions in terms of was it a failure of the control um, operation or was it a failure of the control design? And if it was a failure of the control design, actually was the organization pointed, uh, pointing their resources in the right the right areas? So I think what it does do, because it is such, I think becomes an important tool in the context of real procedures, it also potentially means that maybe the investigation's capability may need to be uplifted um, accordingly. Interesting. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, so you've got a moment to prepare, um, what your priorities would be if you were uh, a corporate here trying to tackle this increase in fraud legislation. Tom, can I come back to you um, with your board advisory hat on? Um, if you were on the other side of that fence, what, what would your priorities be if you were a, a board member or a chairman? Thanks, Ruby. Um, whenever we talk to boards of directors about their duties to the company generally, uh, one of the pieces of advice we try and impart, which in fairness is a bit of a truism, is that to discharge their duties, directors of companies uh, need to have an inquiring mind and a natural curiosity about the operations of the business. And whilst that, that is a bit of a truism and is, and is applicable to most of the decision-making that the boards uh, have to undertake, it's particularly relevant and comes to the fore when we're talking about prevention of fraud. Um, there is a need uh, for non-executives and chairs in particular and those who sit on audit committees uh, to challenge the received wisdom, uh, to ask potentially the stupid question about how does that work? How is it done in practice? Uh, and for, for organizations which are either public companies or private, but with a large uh, interface with the public, there is a real need to ensure that the outward representation of the company and its values uh, to people who may be affected by the company's behavior um, accords with what is actually happening in the business uh, and that there's no dislocation between the two. And one of the reasons that's so important is because of the importance uh, in the modern economy uh, of, of corporates and what they say and what they do. Um, and, and that means that things like cynicism and hypocrisy are, are, are real red flags here in relation to the possibility of fraud. Because if there are people within the business who say, yeah, this is the company's outward position, but it's not, it doesn't really work like that in practice, that, that should be a flashing red light. Tom, thank you. Matt, if you were the chief risk officer of one of our clients, what would you be doing now? So Ruby, my, you won't be surprised to, to learn that I'd be saying you've got to focus on the risk assessment. And, and I think that's important in the context of, uh, of this offence for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, I think we've, as we've touched on a couple of times um, in this conversation, we are talking about a subset of fraud within an organisation and, and specifically fraud where the organization may benefit whether directly or indirectly so the risk assessment i think becomes critical in being able to identify those higher risk parts of the organization where the sorts of opportunities that, that tom described right at the start particularly around incentivization whether in the context of staff or, or, or third parties could crystallize um, this particular risk so 
almost using that risk assessment as a little bit of a scalpel to be able to really get to the heart of where the risk is and and more particularly then where the, where the controls are. And I suppose that the follow-on from that would be getting particularly an organization that may already have a focus around fraud. And I'm thinking about sort of financial services that may have sort of insider risk on the one hand, but also sort of fraud against its customers on the other. It's quite possible that this is an, this will be an area that wouldn't necessarily have had the focus within the organization. So being able to to really identify that potential blind spot and, and be comfortable that, again, as we talked about, ideally existing controls can be recalibrated to focus on that. But it's really, I think, being able to focus on that where the risk is and then get comfortable that you've got the right controls in place. Interesting. Uh, Nisha, tell me what you would be doing if you were the chairman of a, an audit committee. Thank you, Ruby. Um, so really interestingly, I had a conversation uh, with the chief executive officer last week and actually the chair of his audit committee. Um, and there were two particular things that they said they were really interested in thinking about when it comes to this act. And um, I'm tended to agree with them. So one of the things that they said was how on their agenda is looking at their assurance framework. And by assurance framework, they didn't mean, you know, looking at what their external auditors are doing. So whilst obviously the external audit is a big part of the assurance framework, they were very clear around the fact that actually there are limitations when it comes to external audit. Ultimately, if there are significant issues with the design of their systems and controls, they were very clear about the fact that they understood the firm would still be accountable. Um, And that's absolutely right. And that's the right way to be thinking about it. And when it comes to their assurance processes, and this sort of comes back to what Tom was talking about earlier, they were really focused on what does that insurance process actually do? What value does it give them from a boardroom perspective? How much comfort can they get over the processes and controls that are operating within their organization and some of those risk assessments outcomes that Matt talked about? Um, And the conversation was really interesting because in particular, they talked about things like actually from a board perspective, they don't really ever question, for example, the limitations of their internal audit papers. And of course, that's a really important thing for boards to be questioning, to have an open inquiring mind, as Tom said, because the limitations of the internal audit actually will be able to give you great insight in terms of how much reliance you can place on that internal audit. And and where we got to with this conversation, which I thought was really interesting, is they really honed in on the fact that the assurance process that you have is not just about identifying issues when they happen and and forensically analyzing what the root cause was. It's more than that. It's around what positive assurance can you get over your control environment. And that's what it comes down to. As a board and as senior managers, that's what you want. You want a framework that, that tells you where the issues are, but also gives you positive assurance so that you don't become complacent. These things don't catch you out. The second thing, um, which is really, really important, again, going back to some of what Tom and um, Matt were talking about, is around this idea of having an open culture that permeates from the boardroom all the way to the ground. And for them, that was particularly important because what they explained was that they want to build a culture of self-policing. So actually throughout the organization, you get this idea of, of, of people being accountable and responsible for the controls that they are responsible for delivering. However, they said it's a really fine balance because you want to have this open and self-policing policing culture. But equally, this is not about building a framework that is zero risk, right? Zero risk doesn't work because you get decision paralysis and operations can't continue as they should to, to keep the business going. And so there's this real balance that you've got to have in place. And their view was this is where boards really need to focus. It's these soft things. It's around these controls around culture and conduct that are really important to get this right. Thanks, Nisha. Plenty to think about there. 
And Neil, what would you be doing if you were the general counsel of a corporate readying yourself for the failure to prevent fraud offence? Thanks, Ruby. In addition to the failure to prevent fraud offence, as, as you mentioned, um, the Act um, has brought in an expanded version of the identification doctrine um, such that acts of senior managers will now be um, attributable to the corporate for economic crimes. And I think that's a really significant change. Um, and I think something that companies could start doing now is trying to map out and identify and understand who are those senior managers within the business um, whose conduct could potentially expose um, the corporate um, to criminal liability. Um, and, and that will not be a straightforward exercise because it requires some judgment around who's performing a significant role and whether they're performing that in relation to a substantial part of the business. But these are quite important concepts which will take some time to, to work out who the individuals are. And so I think that's an exercise which could um, very sensibly start now um, while firms are waiting for uh, the new offence to come into force. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to Tom Mercer, Matt Russell, Nisha Sangani and Neil Donovan for joining me on this episode. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, then you'll find our details on the Ashurst website. And if you'd like to learn more, then look out for the next podcast in the Corporate Crime and Investigation series. Nisha mentioned audit. We're going to be talking about changes to the audit risk framework in response to fraud and fraud risk management. If you don't want to miss future episodes, do subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform, looking for Ashurst Legal Outlook. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, do leave us a review or a rating and let us know if there are any other topics you'd like to hear us talk about. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.